Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. We're going back to 2009, when dating apps are still in their infancy. And if you're a lonely single person, you're going to turn on your computer and log into websites like Moco Space or Lava Life. You make a profile, add some pictures, and then you start clicking. You hope to find someone nearby. If you're in the area near Apple Creek, Ohio, you don't expect to see an Amish person on these websites. They're online after all, and the Amish don't use internet or they aren't supposed to use the internet. You click through profiles, and soon enough you come across one labeled Amish stud. You're curious, and you match with this person. But the man behind the profile may not be what he seems. Welcome to Case Close from Macmillan Podcasts, the show where the bad guy doesn't get away with it. I'm Charlie Spicer. And I'm Christy Westgard. Last episode, we looked at the man outside the Amish community. All his transgressions against the church and against his wife Barbara and the double life he led. In this episode, we take a look at the women who made that life so interesting. We'll go through them one by one. And just keep in mind that these are the only women that the police had contact with after Barbara's murder. This doesn't include the countless other women he was in contact with during his years on these dating websites. We're actually starting our dive into Eli's dating life offline the old-fashioned way. This would be back in 2006, when Eli met a lady we'll call Shelley Casey. You know, Shelley was one of the first women that Eli dated or saw when he left the Amish. That's Greg Olson, the author of A Killing in Amish Country with Rebecca Morris. And just a quick reminder that Shelley is a pseudonym used to protect her identity. And we'll be doing the same with the other women in this episode. Okay, let's get back to the story. Eli and Shelley met in May of 2006, so seven years after Eli and Barbara got married. At this point, Eli had just left Barbara and the Amish to live among the English for the first time. He'd shaved his beard and cropped his hair short. Instead of his typical dark-colored suit, suspenders, and straw hat, he wore blue jeans and a T-shirt. When he and Shelley began talking, he told her he had recently left the Amish. They exchanged numbers, and a week or two later, Eli texted her. The two began going on beagle hunts, and then just hanging out. Soon, they began hooking up. He was isolated, having just left the Amish, so Shelley was his first real connection outside of the community. By the summer, after only a month or two, Eli had moved in with Shelley and her parents. Shelley fell for Eli quickly. She'd write him letters saying that she loved him and felt she must be the luckiest girl alive. They had their rough patches. Eli didn't have a job, and he sometimes expressed guilt over his children. What was interesting about Shelley was she had a real heart for the situation. She 
cared deeply about Eli and wanted him to have a strong relationship with his kids. Shelley encouraged him to see them, and at the end of June, two months into the fling, Eli went back to his family. But that didn't last too long. After just two weeks, Eli went back to Shelley, and he found a job. Shelley took it as a sign that Eli loved her equally. But in August, he left Shelley again, this time for good. The pattern of leaving the Amish, coming back, leaving, coming back, it's a pattern of Eli's. One can only wonder what would have happened if Eli had chosen to live his life free of rules as a non-Amish instead of going back and forth. Greg has his own theories on what kept Eli from fully abandoning his faith. There was something about the Amish, and maybe it was his wife, or maybe it was just the idea that, you know, a need he had to be back with those people, even though, you know, his other interests, sexual or, or technology-wise, were always calling him to leave. But curiously, three years later, in May of 2009, Shelley got a text from Eli. He said he wanted to see her, but he didn't offer any explanation for the three years of silence. Shelley didn't care to know either, and she said no. But why was he suddenly trying to work his way into her life again? For now, let's go to the next woman Eli met that we know about. This woman met Eli after he fired off a text message to a wrong number in about mid-2007. So Eli mistakenly texted this woman, who we'll call Misty Stevens, and she responds. So they began this texting relationship. At first, Eli never mentioned that he was married with four children and soon to be five. Eventually, though, Misty found out, but they continued to see each other. And over time, their relationship turned sexual. To cover their tracks, Misty would pick Eli up at the crack of dawn, 3.30 a.m. or 4 a.m. He wanted to make it look as though he were going fishing. They would go to a motel. They would have sex and then talk. During these discussions, Eli had told her about how unhappy he was in his marriage, how he wasn't getting the love or attention he deserved. How, if his wife were to pass away, he would leave the Amish community so they could be together. This theorizing about if my wife should die is something that Eli kept bringing up to these women. If my wife dies, I can leave the Amish and be with you. Misty, for one, disregarded these comments. Then, several months into their affair, Misty became pregnant with Eli's child. Their relationship died off after that. Eli gave feeble excuses for why he couldn't leave his family. It became clear that he wasn't going to be a committed partner and father, so Misty broke it off. I pretty much told him I couldn't be with someone who was married. In July of 2008, a little under a year before Barbara would be murdered, Misty gave birth to a girl. Eli sent a monthly check of $350, written from the supply store's bank account to hide his tracks. But in June of 2009, Misty received her last check. When we come back from the break, Eli starts looking for a new kind of lover, online. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. As his online persona, Amish Stud, Eli could fulfill his most hidden desires. The names of some of the 141 friends he connected were blatantly sexual. Too much ass. 69 smiley girl. Naughty little sexy sex slave. While most of these interactions stayed online, some moved to the real world, like Eli's relationship with Sherry Lindstrom. The two met on Moco Space in April of 2008. So Eli would have been seeing Misty at the same time. Sherry was in her 20s, had a kid, and lived about a half hour from Eli. She'd been curious from the get-go about him. What was an Amish man doing on an online dating app? At the beginning, they talked online about how much they loved the outdoors, hunting, and fishing. Eli told Sherry about the Amish drama and gossip. I liked him. His personality was fun. He was always telling me the dumb stuff the other Amish did and how the rumors were flying. Everyone had something to say about everyone else. They started talking on the phone, and Eli began telling her more in-depth details about himself, about how he hated his brother, a minister in the church, about how his community wanted him to submit to their standards. As he opened up to Sherry about his Amish life, the romance of the Amish started to fall away but her feelings for Eli were on the upswing. Their first in-person meeting was as friends. Sherry even brought her daughter along. But as with most of Eli's flings, it soon turned sexual. He knew how to charm lonely women who were looking for more. Sherry began visiting Eli at his store. It was there that they would first have sex. The risk of getting caught was exhilarating until it happened one day. Eli had forgotten to lock the door when an Amish man walked in on them. Per his faith, the man went straight to the bishop to report what he'd just witnessed. Now you'd think that adultery would merit a pretty serious reaction from the bishop. Some sort of punishment that would make sure that Eli didn't stray again. But that wasn't the case. Eli got a scolding from the bishop, but really nothing more than a slap on the wrist. We've heard how Barbara dealt with Eli's infidelity before. Well, the Amish church bishops are the ones who decide how to proceed when members violate the rules. And when it came to Eli's cheating, time and time again, the bishops did nothing. In fact, based on how the church was set up, Barbara risked more in the case of divorce than Eli when he was cheating. 
So it's no surprise that the affairs continued. If anything, it only made things more exciting because it was forbidden. Sherry and Eli sent each other nude photos and started to spend time at Sherry's house doing the things that Eli said his wife refused to do. Eli made Barbara out to be the villain. He played the victim. Eli could talk really good game when he's out carousing around and and picking up women. And he used the old, my wife doesn't understand me, that she isn't a partner the way I need her to be. And she's always picking on me. So he gave this old song and dance to make these women feel sorry for him, that he was misunderstood and unloved. With all his demonization of Barbara came promises that he would leave his marriage and the Amish. He wanted Sherry to be there when he left the community to support him in the transition out of the Amish world. I knew I was his out. I feel bad about that now, but at the time, I didn't see he was playing on sympathy to get what he wanted. Over the course of all of Eli's affairs, he started to understand the power of manipulation, the power of taking advantage of someone's sympathy. He knew when he was in the outside world the first time that it was intriguing to women that he was Amish. There was something appealing about this Amish man who, you know, they were going to show him how to go to a movie or how to, you know, um, watch TV. (laughs) You know, it was like a real treat for some of these women to think that they were opening the doors to this fully grown human being who had never experienced anything from the outside world. And of course, he played along with that. He probably made them think that he'd never seen a TV before and couldn't imagine how you got those people in that little box, you know? I mean, I'm sure that was part of his M.O. For Sherry, that meant Eli would play up his naivete. He'd get excited like a little boy whenever they went to McDonald's, and Sherry started to feel a soft spot for his childlike antics. She would come down and sit in Eli's store, chatting with him for hours between his work. And they continued to have sex in Maysville Outfitters, despite getting caught. So it was kind of inevitable when one of Eli's own kids walked in on him and Sherry. Eli grew more bold. He once let Sherry and his wife be in the same room together. Barbara had come by the store to give Eli coffee while Sherry was hanging out. Sherry would later tell police she felt some guilt that day. But Eli had told her all the horrible things Barbara had done, and it made her feel conflicted. They continued to see one another, but as time passed, Sherry tired of Eli's hollow promises to leave. She even began encouraging him to stay with his wife and his children. Sherry and Eli finally broke up nearly a year into their relationship. Then, a handful of months later, out of the blue, Eli sent Sherry a picture. It was two weeks before Barbara's murder. He'd snapped a picture of an empty chair, the chair that Sherry used to sit in at Eli's store. All he said was, Something's missing here. You. Sherry called Eli and they spoke on the phone. Eli, ever the gentleman, told Sherry that his wife was as cold as ever and that if Sherry ever saw her in a parking lot, run her over. Sherry figured he was just joking, but then two weeks later, she finds out his wife has been shot in her sleep. We're going to take a slight detour away from Eli's affairs to talk about a lady friend of Eli's, Tabitha Milton. 
Their friendship began in 2009, just months before Barbara's murder. Tabitha was looking for friendship and maybe more. But after finding out that Eli was married, she and Eli kept their relationship strictly above board. In fact, they first met up so that Tabitha could help Eli build a website. It seemed innocent enough, but this was a common request from Eli, wanting someone to help him build a website. He would tell the woman he interacted with that he wanted to move Maysville Outfitters online, sell things that could be shipped, and use that business to support himself when he'd eventually leave the Amish. And Tabitha supported this. What would eventually blossom into a strong friendship started with Tabitha telling Eli that the way out of his marriage was to learn technology. She even said she could and would help him get his GED. Eli is a master at playing the sympathy card, though. He kept impressing on Tabitha that all he knew was Amish work, farming, hunting. I think he was a lot smarter than he said he was. He caught on too quick. Over the course of their friendship, their conversations would veer towards Eli's sexual exploits. He'd talk about an Amish girl he was seeing, or a Mennonite woman from an Amish restaurant. And of course, he'd complain about his wife and her inability to satisfy him. He'd ask Tabitha questions about sex. She'd do her best to answer them. In some ways, she felt sorry for him, for his lack of knowledge due to his Amish upbringing. Here's Greg's take. He's a predator. we got to know that, right? He's going to pick the women that he can charm and that can be the kind of audience that he's looking for. I mean, he's after sex. There's no doubt about that. But he's wanting to win them over. And why not be kind of a charming hick from Mama's country? You know, if that works, it works. What we see with Eli and Tabitha is something that we didn't really see with the other women that he was with. We see a genuine care for her as a person. For example, when Tabitha was laid off from her factory job but still needed to provide for her family, Eli became her cheerleader. He comforted her, encouraged her to find a new career path, and then Eli gave Tabitha the laptop he bought for himself to develop his website. When she was late on her car payment, Eli gave her the money to pay for it. He really was my best friend, maybe the best friend I'd ever had. He was there for us. He'd come over and we'd have pizza with the kids, watch TV. He was just an all-around great guy. When my mom could no longer care for her beagle, Eli took the dog in. He was always so helpful to us. But behind this facade was still a man cheating on his wife and spreading lies about the type of woman Barbara really was. Eli's stories about his wife were absolutely over the top. Uh, She was the kindest, gentlest woman, and it's not just because she was murdered. We always say that, you know, oh, they're so nice. But the truth was, she was. And Eli had the gall to tell some of his acquaintances and friends that she actually beat him or hit him, and that he was afraid of her, and that she was a kind of, um, you know, Jekyll and Hyde type Amish wife. None of that was true. Tabitha told police later on that she'd heard Eli talk about killing his wife at least a dozen times, but mostly jokingly. So she never believed that he would actually do it. He'd brought up ways to murder her, like maybe choking her. But they were jokes, right? About a month prior to the murder, Eli randomly asked Tabitha about what kind of poison he could use to kill his wife. He asked specifics, like what if he put rat poison in her tang, an orange drink? Would that make her sick enough? Would it kill her? But Tabitha never took him seriously, and they just laughed it off. 
Tabitha felt like she should trust Eli. They were best friends, after all. One time, when Tabitha's phone broke, Eli helped her out by adding her onto a friends and family plan that he had for his own cell phone. Tabitha thought the phone was just another kind gesture by Eli, but she later learned that it wasn't his phone to give. And here's where we'll introduce our next lady in Eli's life, Barb Raber. Barb Raber was a Mennonite woman who had a husband and five children. She was living not too far from the Weavers. She was the actual owner of the phone that Eli loaned out. And you'll remember Eli mentioned her name along with Sherry's while being questioned by the police. Eli never told Tabitha about the phone, but he did introduce her to Barb for another reason. Remember how he'd loaned Tabitha his computer? It turns out Barb knew her way around it, so he connected her with Tabitha to answer any questions. The ladies talked a handful of times, and it wasn't unusual for their chit-chatting to drift towards one area of common ground, Eli and his hate for his wife. Tabitha figured that Barb took Eli's crude jokes about killing his wife in the same spirit she did. They were empty words. What she didn't realize was how tight the hold was that Eli had over Barb. Eli was a manipulator with years of practice. He'd seduce, he'd manipulate. He'd paint his wife as a monster. He'd play the innocent Amish card. Then he'd subtly plant the seed of a murder. Why hadn't any of these women gone to the police? Would Barbara still be here if they had? And what did Barb know that she wasn't telling Tabitha? Next time, we'll dive deep into Barb's life and the effect manipulation can have on a person who may be particularly vulnerable. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It's hosted by Charlie Spicer and Christy Westgard and produced by Christy Westgard. Scripting support was provided by Becky Celestino. Production editorial support is provided by Jasmine Faustino. Be sure to check out Greg Olson and Rebecca Morris's book, A Killing in Amish Country, for more about this case. You can find more information about Macmillan Podcasts at macmillanpodcast.com. That's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N podcast.com. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.